welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I am your host, Monica Hadley, and on the other end of the line is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Good morning, everyone. I hope you're having a good day so far. <laughs> or afternoon or evening, whenever you happen to be oh, listening to this. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, Caroline started on live radio in, what, 1972 or something like that? So yeah, at, right. the, at that point in time, whatever time it was when you were talking is when people were listening. <laughs> but the That's world true. has changed. <laughs> oh, my, has it ever. The world has, has changed. And um, some, in some ways, definitely for the better, and in some ways not as much as we wish it would have. And that is a good segue into our book today. So who is our guest, Mom? Well, today we have a very interesting book, and uh, it's uh, it's, uh, it's really it's really a page turner, as far as I'm concerned. And the author is A. D. Nauman. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. And she is a Chicago author, whose short fiction has appeared in Chicago Quarterly Review, um, Willow Springs, The Literary Review, and many other journals. And um, she is an Illinois Arts Council Literary Award recipient whose work has been produced by stories on stage and broadcast on NPR. I, think I found that very interesting. And although she's a Midwesterner, she grew up mostly in Tidewater, Virginia. And uh, it, the book is, oh gosh, <laughs> Down the... Down the Steep. Down, down the Steep. I, it's, it's in such an unusual... Such an unusual title, and I'm going to ask her about that, but yes. I'll let you start. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to Writer's Voices, A.D. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So this is a book set in Virginia in the 1960s, primarily. Right. And um, it is about a young girl who adores her father, who's a member of the Klan, and but comes to realize that maybe the things he stands for are not all good. And um, what drew you – well, let, let's actually start with, with uh, Caroline's question, which is, down the steep, what does that title signify? So down the steep is from a Bible verse – and this is the Bible verse uh, in which it's a parable in which a man appears who is possessed by demons. And Jesus comes to him and calls the demons out of the man and sends the demons into a, a herd of swine, which is nearby. And the swine kind of lose their minds being possessed by this evil and run down the steep or down a steep place. It depends on which version of the Bible you're reading. Uh, in one, it's down a steep hill. The, the swine run down the steep hill and drown themselves in the water at the bottom of the hill. And this is a reference to how I feel... Um, Racism and sexism and these these other kinds of tribal hatreds affect the people who hold them. In other words, 
if we are racist or or you know or Islamophobic or anti-Semitic, any of the any of these sort of tribal hatreds or sexist, um, it's self-destructive. It's it's hurting ourselves, and that's where the the title came from. Is that Bible verse? That's a very interesting. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was going to be my main question. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so we start off good. All right. <laughs> so, A.D., what drew you to write this story, write this book? Uh, well, there. I think the origin story of this book has has several different facets, which is is interesting. Um, as as you mentioned, I did grow up mostly in Tidewater, which is Southeast Virginia. I call myself an accidental Midwesterner. I'm I'm not exactly sure how I ended up in Chicago, where it's very cold, but here I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Every winter, I think, why am I here? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> so in, in the book, Down the Steep, there are two families. It's about primarily there are two families. The McCoy family is the main family. They have four kids, and that's the family in which the father is a Klansman. The other family is the Swansons, and they are a family, a young couple with two young daughters, who are um, the the man is a minister. He's taken a job at the church in this fictitious town. So they are from Minnesota. They're northerners who come down into the area for a job opportunity. And while they're there, they are they're trying to to be a positive force in the civil rights movement, although they are not. Um, they, that's not the main focus of of their lives. I mean, they're they're trying to contribute in a positive way, but they're not. They don't spend all their time working on the civil rights. Uh, they're, they're not issues. activists. Thank you, thank you. That's the word I was <laughs> yeah. striving for. They're not. They're quiet activists. Yeah. They're sort of ordinary mm-hmm. quiet activists. Mm-hmm. And that so that family is actually based on my own family. My father was a minister. <laughs> uh, my mom grew up in Minnesota. And they moved to this small town in Virginia during the civil rights era. And we were living there for, we lived there for about four years, then moved, um, and then moved back to Tidewater. So I, I mostly grew up in Tidewater. But for, for, so for when I was a little kid, I was living in this very small town in Southeast Virginia. Um, and, so it was, you know, it's it's a family memory. And every now and then through the years, my mother would say to me, there were Klan members in that church. And that's all she'd say. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that, you know, that sort of sticks with someone in there in their head. And um, honestly, one of my earliest childhood memories is of a Klan march. Um, so. My positionality in this book is is of that little girl in the Swanson families, uh, Swanson family. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, and so we had that family history and um, it was sitting with me for many decades. Um, 
And I started to get a bit nostalgic for the Tidewater area. Again, living here in the cold Chicago (laughs) winter. I'm like, remember how nice Tidewater was? So I thought it would be fun to write about Tidewater. And I actually began writing this book during the second Obama administration. When people were going around saying, oh, we're in a post-racial society, there's no racism anymore, and of course there was no sexism anymore, all of that is taken care of, and I felt like, you know, I don't think that's true. I'm, I'm feeling a little undercurrent, <laughs> a little undercurrent here of racism and, and sexism in our culture, despite Obama's presidency. A and little? Course, a little? Yes. <laughs> of course it erupted. Um, when Donald Trump was elected, just as a reminder to, to everyone, Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote, but um, but you know Trump obviously was elected, and then everything erupted. So I was still working on the book during that era, and um, I finished it in 2020 when George Floyd was murdered. So it seemed like its relevance was only increasing. You know, I have to tell you that when I was reading the book and I got to the, you know, most of it is set during one year of this girl's life. Um, mm-hmm. And she's 13, 14, something like that. And, um, and then the very end, she's an adult looking, you know, she's taught the whole time she's speaking, I think as an adult telling this story. Right. Yes. But yeah. then um, the last few chapters, she is an adult. And um, and when I started reading that part for a moment, I thought, oh, my gosh, this wasn't was this a novel or was this a memoir? <laughs> <laughs> and, you, yeah, right. I and I had to go look it up. I had to go check. <laughs> I've been calling it a faux memoir. It is complete fiction, uh, except for little bits of of, uh, facts that I picked up from my family history. Yeah. And to the extent that all characters are somewhat rooted in the experience of the author. Right. Right. uh, Yeah. It does read like a memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it just seemed so, so real. And well, one of historical the historical fiction, right? Yes. Historical fiction does seem real. That's it, what, that's the, that's the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. That's true. Um, in the, in the book, the main character, whose name escapes me at the moment, what, what's her name? Willa. Willa, Willa yes, okay. of course, yeah. Willa. And she, um, she manages. She wants to be something other than what is expected of her, and what she sees of her mother and the women around her. She wants to grow up to be a journalist and, and travel the world and do something important with her life. And and she just she's trying so hard, so hard to get her father's attention. And. Why, why is she, why is it such a struggle for her to get her father's attention? Well, it's a struggle because he has in his head this hierarchy of people and they all have a place in the world and women and girls are only there to be wives and mothers and serve men. He 
he thinks that women and girls are inferior to men. He thinks they're not as smart. Um, and he has very low expectations. So to him, Willa is a bit of a non-entity. What's important to him is his, his two sons. Um, and then the older sister, who is so beautiful, can be used to, to marry up <laughs> in the social structure of this little town. It's interesting to me that, you know, with all the, the different characters in the book, her friends and her, her siblings' friends, that the, you know, the, um, the family that her, that her parents are just so enamored with the sister possibly, you know, being the girlfriend of this boy, they were not nearly as racist as her family was. They were, you know, they're pro, they probably weren't real, you know, allies. They probably weren't weren't active in the civil rights movement, but they weren't as bigoted. And was that do you do you think in those places where the Klan was so prevalent, was it often the lower class whites who were most active in it? You know, I, I think that um, the lower income or you know people lower on that on that social strata were at greater risk for being that virulent in their racism. That when you think about it, the people at the top of the the food chain, which is what this wealthy family, the Dardens, um, were meant to be. So they're the town swells, basically. They're pretty comfortable and secure in their lives. So they can afford to be a bit more generous. Uh, I do not think that I, I don't. First of all, membership of the Klan does cut across social strata. So you do definitely find. And that, that was one thing my mom used to talk about uh, when we were living in that town, pointing out that um, some of the doctors some business owners were also in the clan. It was it was not just the working class or the or the lower class, but I you know I do think that there is a uh, a risk for people of lower income because traditionally historically in the U.S. Um, the the wealthier of us have manipulated the um the lower class to to focus on on the you know the the other rather than yeah to blame to blame their to us sitting up here at the top of the food chain the yeah. real problem is these brown and black people so yeah. you better make sure to hate them a lot yeah yeah because there have been a few times in history where um black and white working class people have banded together and boy, the upper classes weren't very happy about that. No, and did everything they could to prevent it, and and partially by giving the you know favoring one segment just slightly over another, so that you know, well, I might not have much, but at least I have more than those people. Right. Yeah. Right, and I think if if someone feels insecure in themselves. Uh, they're, you know, they can use, oh, well, 
well, at least I'm above this group. Yeah. So they yeah. can use that to help pump up their own sense of self a little bit, which is sad. You know, it's, but it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenon I've seen a lot. Yeah. Now, one thing that kind of surprised me, but, you know, since this is based on your family history, it obviously was true, but that, that a Southern church would accept a Northern preacher. That's a great point <laughs> that I thought about a lot. Um, so in reality, this is, this is what it was. So my mother grew up in, in Minnesota. My father actually grew up in the West. And I found this old article from the newspaper when they when the church hired him and they identified him as being from California. Uh, so that's a really good point. However, it's it's not, um, you know, it was it was not like it was unheard of. Ministers move around a lot. Yeah. And the the denomination that that church in the book is, is supposed to be isn't evangelical or super conservative. In fact, this predates the evangelical movement as we know it now. Um, but it was fairly liberal. So, you know, except for <laughs> making sure people stayed in their place. Yeah. Um, it Yeah, it had some liberal elements to it. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because I, I would have to say now, <laughs> in the South, uh, being from California is worse than being from the Oh, North. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also think about it, and, and this was a line from the novel, Minnesota, when, when you live in the South, when you live in Southeast Virginia, you think of the North as the states right above you. Right. <laughs> Minnesota is like out west yes, somewhere. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Canada or something, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's not the ones that that they were... Um, Minnesota wasn't who they were rebelling against in the Civil War. Right. <laughs> Although, I will say, you know, having... Um, we had family here in Iowa who fought in the Civil War, and we have some letters from that time, and... They were very much fighting to um, against slavery, mm-hmm. you know, it, and it was very moving to read some of those letters and you know what they saw and what they and why they were doing why this soldier was was doing what he was doing. Interesting, yeah. Uh, and in fact, there was an entire regiment of black soldiers from Iowa. Free, free black men from Iowa that fought mm-hmm. in the Civil War. They weren't allowed to have their own officers, so they had to have white officers. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I think I read somewhere that, like, almost every free black man in Iowa joined that regiment. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It was also interesting when Willa went, um, when she was no longer in the South and, and she learned how history was taught differently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it probably still is. Yes. Oh yeah. So I rem- I'm remembering from my own dis- distant childhood in Southeast Virginia. Um, 
in the history books at the time in the 1960s, we had references to the war between the states. It was not ever called the Civil War. Um, often it's called the War of Northern Aggression. And so, it, as I mentioned, there are, there are some details in the book that um, are true in that my, my parents told me about them. So, I mean, true according to my parents. And one of the one of these details is that there were people cheering when Kennedy was assassinated. Um, and that's not, you know, that's just not something we in the Midwest or North would realize could be possible. Yeah. And then they were very disappointed in LBJ, weren't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is A.D. Nauman, author of Down the Steep, which is a coming-of-age story set in the Jim Crow South. Um, in terms of, you know, you do have African-American characters in the book. How did you, as a white woman living in Chicago, portray... You know, how were you able to portray them accurately? Well, that is a that's an important issue that I gave a lot of thought to. Um, so, well, one one thing, and it's actually a little bit funny in creating the character of Daisy. I modeled her on one of my colleagues and friends at the university. I teach at Northeastern Illinois University in the College of Education. I modeled her on a woman I work with, and then I forgot to change her last name. (laughs) (laughs) So the name of the character in the book is very close to the name of of my colleague. Fortunately, and then I had to fess up. I said, you know, I got to tell you something. (laughs) This character is based on you. I I think that in my life, in, in various places, I've known many, many African-American people. I've had black friends. Um, and, of course, in the South, there there is a lot of, uh, well, there's, frankly, it's, it's the South, it, you come into contact with black people a little bit more often sometimes than you do in at least the city of Chicago, which is extremely segregated by, by uh, region. Um, so I, I feel like I felt like I had enough life experience with black people to be able to, to portray them um, as characters in my novel. That said, I would not have attempted to write from the, a point of the point of view of a black person. So I don't feel like, I would have the depth of experience needed to do that in an original and accurate and meaningful way. Did your friend who you um, kind of model Daisy after read the book and give you any feedback on this? You know what? I, she hasn't yet. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I need to follow up with her. <laughs> right. Right. Um, yeah. It's hard to really, yeah, to, to know what it would have been like for those teenagers living in that environment in reality. 
but you know, I without giving too much away, you know, there's an incident um where the main young black character, the young black man, is um you know, accosted by clan members. And mm-hmm. I think that a lot of black families have stories in their family history similar to that. I think it's it's a pretty common thing. Oh yes. Yeah. And it's hard to imagine living knowing that that type of thing could happen at any time and there was very little you could do about it. Right. Uh, right. Well, uh, again being in Chicago and or anywhere in the US, the, the feelings are the same when their their sons are pulled over by the police. There's a fear that yeah. It's quite similar, I, I think. Yeah. 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 Things maybe haven't changed as much as we wish they would have. No, I don't think so. But somehow we seem to... <laughs> There's a danger, I think, of, you know, you read a book like this and you think, well, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. We're better than that now. Yeah, you know... <laughs> That that and that is a danger of writing historical fiction. Um, you think, oh well, that's the thing. Yeah, thank goodness we live now. We're now we are civilized, and yeah, and that that's part of the reason why I added the epilogue um, to make that line from the through line from the 1960s to now very very clear that really what we're seeing these days is the Klan having morphed into uh, this sort of white male nationalism that is asserting itself in our country today. That's what it is. You know, it's just the Klan in in different outfits. Yeah. A.D., would you like to read a little bit from Down the Steep? Sure. I would be delighted to. Um... Okay, so I'm going to read a passage before I do just a couple things to set up your listeners. Uh, In this passage, Willa, who is the main character, is 13 years old. And again, this takes place in 1963 in a fictitious town in southeast Virginia. Willa longs to be like her important father. He's her role model, not her mother. Um... But she has just overheard him tell her mother that he thinks she, Willa, is not very bright. She's devastated by this. She's absolutely devastated. But she hatches a plan. Her plan is to get straight A's in school the next year to prove to her father that she is indeed smart. So she's excited that she has this plan. All right. And the scene I'm going to read is the morning after she overhears her father say this. The next morning, I woke to the sound of my mother calling, Willa, come here, please. I trotted down the hall to my parents' bedroom, where a pile of clean white clothes formed a pyramid in the center of their bed. I squeezed alongside it and sprawled on the pillows. As usual, my mother had set up the ironing board in front of the window so she could catch glimpses of the outside world. Our magnolia tree was there, its branches quiet in the breezeless heat. I raised myself onto my elbows. My mother unfurled one of my father's shirts, then eyed me, lounging on the bed. 
Now you watch me while we talk, she said. Watch how I'm doing this. See how I'm ironing it flat? The point of the iron nipped onto and off the collar, darting up and back like a nervous squirrel. See? Yes, I felt exhausted. I see. You're 13, she huffed. By now you should be able to iron more than your father's handkerchiefs. Okay, she glared. My mother was a tall woman, her arms and legs lanky and strong. She had a body designed for farming, though her father owned a butcher shop in their small Ohio town. During the Depression, this had kept him employed, but still at night he'd hidden his knives under his mattress for fear the bankers would break in to repossess them. My mother's childhood had instilled in her a profound fear of spending money. She struggled to stay silent when my father overspent. Last year, he'd wanted to buy the 21-inch RCA Victor Color TV in the window of Moorhead's Electronics so we could see Disney's wonderful world of color and the tail feathers on the peacock. My mother had to use her feminine wiles to avert the purchase, pointing out that the wood stain would clash with the rest of the furniture. My father always deferred to ladies in matters of home decor. I watched her bone-shaped fingers clutch the handle of the iron. Finally, she said, what are you going to do when you get married? Tell your husband to iron his own shirts? <laughs> yep, I replied, seeing this is the only possible response. I'll say Ichabod. That'll be his name, Ichabod. Ichabod, I'll say. Though I'll probably call him Icky. Icky, I'll say. You'll just have to iron your own shirts because I refuse to learn how. She tried not to <laughs> smile. But her eyes glittered. I was the only one of us kids who could make her laugh. Ichabod will leave you, she said. Good riddance, I bellowed. He was a snorer. And I imitated <laughs> how Ichabod would snore loud, slurpy, snorting sounds. Be serious. I was serious, but like everyone else, she didn't believe me when I said I never wanted to get married. I wanted to be a career gal, like the women in movies who worked in newsrooms, clacking away at their typewriters with the men. I knew without being told a woman had to choose between career or marriage. You couldn't do both, because what if you neglected your husband? Imagine the poor husband with wrinkled shirts, his favorite socks still in the hamper, his dinners frozen and served late by an inattentive wife. I imagine such a man, rumpled and hungry, sitting forlorn in his chair as the house grew dim, waiting for his wife to come home and bring him a sweet tea. She continued, you won't learn to iron, you refuse to learn to cook. Is this what you wanted to talk to me about? No. She lifted the shirt, gave it a shake, poked its shoulders one at a time into the arms of a hanger. Another shirt came off the pile and flapped onto the ironing board. You know Reverend Swanson's wife? Yeah, not really. Reverend Swanson was our new minister, and I didn't pay much attention in church. Did you know Mrs. Swanson has multiple sclerosis? I didn't reply. I didn't even know what that was, though I could tell by my mother's tone it was not good. She said, M.S., it's a deadly disease. Oh, they think the move down here caused her some kind of flare-up. She's not doing well. You know she has those two little girls. Yeah. 
So your father and I are sending you over to help them out a few days a week as our gift to the church. I deflated into the pillows. What? What? To do what? To help out, watch the kids, do some housework. Now I was incensed. Why can't they get a colored girl in? Well, I don't know. Maybe they don't like that idea. They're from Minnesota. They're northerners. Obviously, they're northerners if they're from Minnesota, I replied, showing off my knowledge of geography. (laughs) Willa, she sounded tired to death of me. I sat up, tucked my legs together Indian style and stared furious faced at her. I don't like kids, I proclaimed, a shockingly unfeminine statement. It was like throwing a poison dart at her. Well, you're going to like these ones. You start tomorrow. Ride your bike over. When school starts next week, you go there straight from school three days a week. What? What about my homework? She hung another shirt and gathered my father's regalia from the pile on the bed. The garment overflowed her arms, swallowed the ironing board and its metal legs. You'll have time for homework. Not as much. I doubted she heard the genuine panic in my voice. You'll be fine. She ironed the robe one swath at a time, dragging it toward her. Mama, this year I have a goal, to get straight A's. Good, she replied without hesitation. You can do it. You're a smart girl. Her response was so sincere, I could tell she was thinking of what my father had said and feeling bad for me. She wanted my father to love me, too. I thought I might cry. I said, I'll go over to the Swansons, and I won't complain at all if... You asked Daddy, can I go with him and Ricky to the meeting tonight? This made her hand stop ironing and her eyes attached to mine, unblinking beneath pale, raised brows. We are not negotiating here, young lady. She puckered her lips and resumed ironing. Anyway, you know he'd say no. You know that. He doesn't want ladies involved because we might blab it all over town. Mama, she shook her head slowly. Her shaggy, pale brown ponytail swayed with each shake. We do what your daddy says, Willa. Your daddy's a brilliant man, and he knows what's best. A lot of people in this town don't understand things the way your daddy does. He sees what's coming, and he's braver than most of those other men, too. I'm brave. I can see what's coming. How could I grow up to be like my father if I was excluded from everything he did? Mama, please, just ask him. She kept shaking her head, then to console me, you can help me make the deviled eggs for the meeting. I'll show you the right way to boil eggs so the shells don't stick. (laughs) She lifted the regalia from the ironing board and found its special hanger, the extra wide one made of wood that would hold the weight of the garment. She hung it high on the edge of the closet door and the material shimmered, catching bits of sun that blasted through the window. I saw how artfully she'd sewn the insignia over the breast, the arms of the cross straight in its red circle, the teardrop centered. My mother came toward me to rummage through the clothes on the bed. Okay? Okay, I croaked. From the pile, she pulled the hood, fitted it over the narrow end of the ironing board, aligned the eye holes, and began ironing from the bottom to the top, where the material formed a point. And that was A.D. Nauman, reading from Down the Steep. The whole thing of the clan, and it was, it's, it's, it's always been an interesting 
to me, um, I don't think any of our people were Klansmen. I'm pretty sure they weren't. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure they weren't either, <laughs> especially since, <laughs> like, on one side of the family, we had um, one of your great-grandfathers or you know, left the church because that he was part of because it wasn't taking a stand on abolition. So and one of my great grandmothers was, uh, she was in the, uh, oh, what do they call that? The Underground Railroad ran, they ran a station Under- on the Underground, Underground yeah. Railroad yeah. in yeah. Lambsgrove, right. Iowa. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah. So, you know, you had that family, you know, from living there and your mother saying some of the church members were, were part of the clan, but was there something else that, that, um, you know, really made you want to dig into this subject? Well, I, one of, one of the, um, one of the issues that has a a grip on me is the, um, our modern day culture wars. I get very frustrated about our culture wars. And one thing I did want to do was I thought it would be interesting to trace the roots back to, where I thought they were in the 1960s, that very turbulent decade where everybody was fighting for their civil rights. Uh, and I think that is where, I mean, that was definitely a way station <laughs> on the roots. Um, so when, and then when I started researching the Klan, I found that it does sort of rise and fall. So, you know, you would think that, oh, they were they were very powerful just after the Civil War and then their power has been just diminishing progressively over the decades. But that's not true. The power diminishes and then it rises again, then it diminishes and then it rises again. Um, and it rose again, especially after the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus the Board of Education, which was going to enforce into desegregation of schools that um, was very upsetting to people who thought that that white people were superior and they shouldn't mingle with black people. Um, so I, again, I, I feel like, uh, and probably from my own personal experience with sexism, I'm just very, sensitive to the social injustices that linger in our in our country, um, including the injustices against poor people, mm. class class based injustices. Yeah. Um, I have a little question, a little bit off the subject. How, how do you boil eggs so the shells don't stick? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> I, I know that if you if you boil fresh eggs, it's harder, and that older eggs you can do more easily. But um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think you just have to boil them long enough. So, <laughs> so they're rubbery. Boil them till they're rubbery. <laughs> That was a topic, actually, that my mother was constantly talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, deviled eggs, you know, they're a, a cultural milestone. What would you say? Um, you know, people who put pickles and other stuff in the in the deviled eggs versus those that don't. It's a it's a huge divide. 
Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know that, so I learned something. Thanks, Monica. <laughs> so, Down the Steep is your second published novel? Is that yes. true? Okay. And the first one was very different. Yes. <laughs> you want to tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> so my first novel, which was published 20 years ago, was titled Scorch. And yeah, you're right. It was very different. It was a dystopian novel set in the near future of America in which America had become, had morphed into being a corporocracy. So it, like all dystopian novels, it was a cautionary tale. Um, and, <laughs> and, and has it all come true? <laughs> yeah, things basically came true, and so then now it's not dystopian anymore. It's just you know a reality, fiction. <laughs> contemporary fiction. Yes. <laughs> um, but again, I my concern there was was issues of social justice and how our culture was being shaped. By attitudes of, um, well, by values and attitudes that put wealth as the most important thing in the world. You know, the most important thing is money. You know, that's your measure of success, making money. Another thing about that novel was um, that I think about a lot just going through my day. People in that novel, the characters were immersed in advertising. So there's advertising absolutely <laughs> everywhere, including there were little ads on the toilet paper. <laughs> well, I have seen ads in public toilets. I, <laughs> not on the toilet paper yet, but definitely on in the toilets. Yeah. So, oh yeah, gosh. you really couldn't escape this feeling that you were being defined but as a consumer, that your value in the world was only as someone who consumed things. And, uh, you know, another yeah. thing that happens when we are immersed in advertising, um, what ads do is make you want something and make you feel like you, you lack something. So we are right. being constantly told in our culture today that we're not good enough. We're not slim enough or young enough or, or, you know, we don't have a good enough car. We don't have a big enough house, whatever it is, but it's this bombardment of ways in which we're not good enough. So I, I think that has an effect on, on our cultural psyche, on our collective psyche. Yeah. You know, I think about sometimes, so like if, <laughs> if that all changed and we weren't producing all this stuff to buy, what would we be, what would we do? You know, <laughs> you know, so many jobs, so many businesses are based on producing things uh -huh. that we don't really need. And, but would we be happy living the simple, like, subsistence life where you only had the stuff that you need? Well, okay. <laughs> I don't think it's either or. I, you know, I think it's a continuum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like stuff too. You know, I have an insane number of fancy little bowls and stuff. Um, <laughs> I see. I see a lot of posters on your walls. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's it's a matter. I think it's a matter of balance. I I feel like. Um, I mean, that's what that novel about the fear of of 
losing balance and, and being tipped into sort of an extreme, um, well, it's, it's an extreme form of capitalism. Okay. And then you've since written a lot of short stories that have been published. Why did it take so long to do another novel? Well, it, it didn't. It took a long time to publish another novel. Ah, okay. <laughs> so in the, in the 2000s, um, well, one of the things I was doing was I, have a, I had a child. Uh, okay. These things happen. <laughs> How? And, um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was still writing. You know what I, what I wasn't doing was spending a lot of time, again, working on connections to in the publishing world and and um, and submitting. I, I had fallen off of that. But I wrote a middle grades novel for my daughter when she was in the middle grades. Um, and I did get an agent with that, but she did not sell it. She wasn't wow. able to sell it. And then I wrote a young adult novel when my daughter was a young adult. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a theme here. <laughs> I think there is. And um, the agent didn't like that book. So she didn't, she declined to represent it. And that's when I kind of uh, felt like, okay, well, I'm just going to work on short stories for a while because this is too heartbreaking. Uh, but then, yes. And then my, now my daughter's an adult. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm back to writing fiction for adults. <laughs> uh, and I, I think that's where I'll stay. I, I enjoyed writing the novels for kids and I might return to them after I retire someday. So. Uh, you may see that again, but for now, I'm really enjoying writing historical fiction. Uh, and you said something in an earlier podcast that I really appreciated. You, you said reading historical fiction is a great way to learn history. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, um, and it's a great way to teach history, too, mm -hmm. because I think sometimes people are more open to learning through story than they are yes through lecture <laughs> or, oh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> or you know I personally like I love hi history I'm very interested in history and historical fiction particularly and I'm not all that interested in watching documentaries I'm, oh. I'm much more interested in watching fictionalized accounts <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm not sure why but you know I, I don't know what that says about me but um <laughs> But, yeah, it's – we learn through hey. story, absolutely. We do. I, 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 yeah. Hey, I have a question. How, how did that name, Ku Klux Klan, how did that come to be? That's a weird name. Ooh, yeah. And um, I found that out. Um, and actually, that's in the <laughs> – it's in the prologue of my novel. Um <laughs> So hold on a second. I'm just quickly looking it up. Um, yes, kuklos. Kuklos is the Greek word for circle. Oh, okay. So the um, the the after the the Civil War, the Confederate soldiers who survived it went back home, and they were obviously traumatized and shocked, and so they they were forming these little social circles so they thought of themselves as a social circle um to you know to go out and terrorize 
people of color, unfortunately. So Kuklos come Ku Ku Klux Klan comes from Kuklos. Well, that yeah, that's, that's the other thing is you know clan is also kind of you think of as a my clan is my family. Yeah. Yeah. And that you know is that the same is it the same word or the same is it spelled differently or something? Well, it's spelled with a K. I you know they wanted it to be all K's. Um, ah, okay. Because clan is C L A. Correct. The family, but family thing is C. Yeah. Yeah, okay. you're right. So it really emphasizes that the term Ku Klux Klan really emphasizes the social, uh, familial. You know, this is this is my circle. These are my people. This is my group. And you are not in my group. And so I must fight you. Yeah. And us versus them uh-huh. mentality, yeah. which seems to be so prevalent throughout history, many different parts of the world. And it's it's kind of mind boggling to me. Why? <laughs> why? But it's I agree with yeah. you. I don't know why, Monica. I um, I don't know why. It's because women don't run the world. I think that's yeah. That's part of it. Although I don't know, you look at some of our female politicians <laughs> these days. Yes, I mean, that is true. I'm living in Iowa. We have I I'm not gonna say anymore. But um <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a lot of us versus them in, in some of the rhetoric coming from women too. So yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't understand that either. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your writing process. Um, I know that you were, um, in your, like in your acknowledgements, you talk about, um, Story Studio Chicago. Uh huh. And, you want to tell us a little bit about what that is and how did that, did they, you know, did your um, relationship with that help with this novel at all? Definitely did. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, um, when my daughter was little, uh, even though I kept writing, I, I didn't have the time to make those connections that it turns out you really need to make <laughs> in order to be published, to get published. So um, I have I do have sort of a demanding day job, which I love. I'm a professor of literacy education at Northeastern Illinois University, which means I get to uh, work with K through 12 classroom teachers who are seeking a master's to to better learn how to teach reading and writing to their students. So I, I work with these brilliant, inspiring teachers, which is delightful. Um but yes, that has kept me busy too. And so after my daughter grew up, went to college, uh, I had more time. I also had more money. Funny that when your kid <laughs> graduates from college, suddenly you have more money. And I found Story Studio, <clears throat> which is a fabulous organization. It it offers classes and workshops and all kinds of opportunities. Um, Rebecca Mackay is the, well, has been the creative director for it. So, and she's full of good ideas. And then many brilliant writers teach there, including Abby Jeannie, uh, the best writing teacher I ever had. And I have been to many, 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 many 
classes and workshops. Um, so I applied, you have to apply, you submit a sample of your manuscript to a class called Novel in a Year. And this class was for people who had full manuscripts, but they were working on revising them. So that's what I had at the time. And they they helped me enormously. And Abby helped me enormously to to be those extra eyes on the pages and point out problem areas. Uh, one of them being I originally had a very long prologue <laughs> that nobody liked. And I was so stubborn about it. <laughs> like, no, I like this prologue. It it literally took me two years to finally let go of that prologue. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you learn from this, A.D.? <laughs> well, you know, if if a majority of people, of readers, are telling you the same thing, you really ought to listen yeah. to it. No. You like the prologue, yeah. Um. Okay, but I got to what what was in the prologue that you loved so much that nobody else liked? All right. So so here's the the secret. The prologue was actually uh part of what is now the epilogue. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so okay. Originally I had Willa, older Willa coming back for her mother's funeral. But you didn't have any of the context. Okay. Apparently she was coming across like a jerk. I, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, which I, I could see that actually. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, Abby Jeannie is an amazing writer and she's someone whose writing I admire. When you're seeking out, um, uh, professors and instructors and teachers, obviously you want to be with someone whose writing you you admire. Um, <laughs> so I trusted her. She, she got what I was doing. And she's the author of The Wildlands, The Light Keepers, The Last Animal. Yes. Yes. Okay. And now, was this course like in person or was it a remote course? It it was in person. It was that was 2018, um, before the pandemic lockdown. So we met in person. It was once a month, and it was a whole year. There were 12 people in the course, and then I I felt like I needed more help, so I kind of re I reenlisted for the second year. And I had her again with another set of students for the second year. And that second set of students also telling me to drop the program. <laughs> <laughs> and it finally sunk in. <laughs> yes, it finally sunk in. So it was 2020. And obviously, we, we all remember that year yeah. when I felt like I was finished with the manuscript and started querying agents. So that was really not the best time to to be querying agents. Um, yeah. However, another thing that Story Studio did. So so first of all, it connected me with other writers, and that was hugely important because I had been I had become disconnected from a writing community, and they also had lots of workshops on to, on publishing, how to publish, and I learned so much from those workshops and little conferences that they had. Um, it's amazing how, you know, no matter how old you get, there's always more to learn. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we are almost out of time. And so what is next for you, A.D., in terms of writing? 
I am working on another historical novel also set in Southeast Virginia. <clears throat> this one set in colonial Williamsburg in, during the Great Depression. Hmm. Okay. Colonial yeah. Williamsburg in yes. the Great Depression. Yes. Okay. So, okay. That sounds, is this also some family history involved in this? Not really, because I'm actually not that old. So, oh. um. <laughs> <laughs> well, his family history, you yeah, know, you can go back a few a, a few generations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it, no, it's not really, but um, uh, having lived in that area, I spent a lot of time going to Colonial Williamsburg, you know, as a mm-hmm. tourist. Yeah. And learning a lot about it. The the 1930s was when Colonial Williamsburg was being reconstructed. Oh, interesting. Yes. Okay, I've never been, so maybe maybe the I'll read your book and get inspired to go. Yeah, I think <laughs> you should. <laughs> Hopefully, it will be published too soon. <laughs> All right. So, Caroline, do you have any final words for us? Yes, there. This this one character in the book, Ruth, who is a minister's wife, was very influential in the uh uh in willa's life and she said she told her everyone makes mistakes sometimes bad ones really bad ones we just have to learn from them forgive yourself but don't forget learn from them so i thought that was a really good advice and in some ways the theme of the book (laughs) yeah really Well, thank you, and thank you for being with us today, A.D. Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful. And we will see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye.